0: So the new light is definitely biodiversity. Biodiversity is the key to the future, be it the climate change, be it uh, soil uh, health, be it uh, the microorganisms or the entire cycle of life. So therefore, uh, the future does look bright for biodiversity-based farming.
1: The biodiversity in question lies in the state of Uttarakhand in India, a region crossed by the Himalayan mountain range. This is a largely hilly state at the foothills of the Himalayas that is home to a wide range of habitats, from plains to oak and pine forests to high elevation slopes. It is a historically and ecologically important region and is also the site of the pivotal Chipko movement of 1973 in India, after which a new wave of environmentalism was born in the country. I am Ramakrishna, a wildlife biologist and science communicator with a deep love for storytelling. Today I will be taking you through a conversation with two inspiring individuals working and living in Uttarakhand. Malika Virti is an urban citizen turned farmer who co-founded Mati Sangatan, a women's collective in Sarmoli Munsiari. This collective actively works to fight against the growing violence against women and focuses on improving community well-being through an environmental lens. Siddharth Negi is one of the founders of Uttaranchal Youth and Rural Development Centre or UYRDC where he works to establish an ecological, social and economic environment wherein the local communities can grow to sustain themselves in the years to come. Together, we explore the challenges of living and farming in a place as dynamic and unpredictable as Uttarakhand, and explore how the agrarian communities there have been adapting to climate change over time. While Siddharthji has always lived in Uttarakhand, Malikadi moved there three decades ago in search of a deeper sense of connection with the land.
2: This is more my Garam Bhumi, or the place that called me to come and live. Uh, I am not originally from the mountains. I am pretty much a city uh, woman who grew up, who was born and brought up in Delhi, even though I belong, my, my ancestors belonged to Punjab. But
1: I chose my frontier. Having moved to Munsiari, she came together with the women from her adopted community to start Mati Sangatan, a truly beautiful collective with an environment-centric and feminist outlook towards sustainability. So just the term
2: mati, um, you know, is evocative of a, of a sentiment. It's mati means earth. It's the essential. It's where we begin from and where we end our journey. So, uh, when I came and settled, or, or rather begun, began to make a home in this little village called Sarmoli in Munsiari, um, it was clear that, you know, as much as one works with the land, what defines us as a, as a civilization is how the people and nature connect works. And I realized that when I was connecting deeply with nature and we had—I I was privileged to have bought a piece of land that I could work, you know, without relating to the people that have lived here and forged a lifestyle before me, without making that connect, there is something essentially missing. Missing not only in the way one works, but also in my ability to continue to live here and work here. So very soon, you know, we kind of, I kind of felt the need to connect with other women. And essentially, in a agrarian society, women are the carriers of, you know, culture and all the codings of how you connect with nature. So, you know, it made good sense to begin to form and forge a relationship with women farmers. And unfortunately with women farmers one very big reality is that we live in a patriarchal society having come from an urban background I was reticent I was slow to you know express myself because I realized that I was at a disadvantage I didn't know too much about you know how to grow stuff how to relate to the environment but I think when I saw the kind of violence that patriarchy inflicts on women. Um that is when my uh my urban training and my the fact that I had I had a voice as an urban woman. I expressed it here. And the first thing that brought us together as Marty was the fact that we put up a joint kind of front and a joint voice to resist and to, you know, expose the inherent violence within Uh, even mountain communities. Oftentimes people will say, oh, you know, in mountain communities, people are simpler, life is easier, there is less violence, but not the case. Patriarchy as an institution expresses itself brutally. And that's when I kind of broke out of my very urban self-consciousness to say, no, one can't keep silent. So what brought us together as a women's collective was this initially our resistance to, you know, our having to uh, confront the violence and pretty brutal violence. But then beyond that, we began to feel that, yeah, we aspire to a life free from violence, but we also aspire for a lot else. For instance, we aspire towards food security. We aspire towards livelihood security. We aspire as well to having our voice heard in local governance institutions of, you know, continuing to express ourselves and assert our right over our forests, our waters, and, you know, our land, you know, what we call the jal Jungle zameen uh, Sangharsh, you know, that's the natural resources that make it possible for people to live in mountainous areas that are fairly challenging. So that's how MATI came about. it took some years for us and we also decided to cast it as an organization that was free from, you know, the NGO culture of having an institution that gets in funds. It was essentially an organization of all women from all castes in every walk of life. So that's how MATI came into being. And it continues
1: as a organization that sustains us. Like MATI, UYRDC was established with similar goals in mind wherein Siddharth and his colleagues worked towards engaging the community actively to strengthen their capacity to think and act collectively on subjects that address common beliefs for self-development. With that context, let's now understand the geography and socio-ecological composition of the places where Malika and Siddharth work.
2: the altitude that we are located at is about 8,000 feet above sea level. And uh, as a valley itself, if you look at the Gori Valley, we the valley itself is about 2,200 square kilometers. Uh, the interesting fact is that only about 4.5% is agricultural land. So here you have a landscape where we are located at in a high mountain region, uh, where on the first rise of the greater Himalaya um, and with very little terraced land, which is cultivable. Uh, the people here are you know, typically of what happens at frontiers, the people who will trade across high passes into Tibet. So this was a region that was open to trade with Tibet till 1962 till the Indo-Chinese war. That's when, you know, trade stopped and people from a transhuman lifestyle where they would, you know, walk with their animals on a fixed seasonal migration route where they'd come up in summer, live in high-altitude villages. The men would go across high passes into Tibet, trade, and come back. After 1962, maybe a little bit into 63, 64, People then were forced to settle and live a more settled life. So these mountain areas were actually more given to rangelands and past you know, pastoral lifestyles when they would, you know, migrate. But because of the war they had to settle. Now settling in a place like Munziari meant that you were really living off the landscape through your animals and your livestock holding. So people would keep sheep and goat at that time. And now for us to continue to do our agriculture, we still need, you know, farm animals. Now in the present context, it's cows, not so much buffaloes because buffaloes don't manage here. Some government programs try to introduce buffaloes, but they really can't negotiate this terrain. So you need cows simply because it's through the cows and you know, the nutrient cycle gets completed because it replenishes the land through farmyard manure. We'll talk more about this later. But essentially, you know, after 1962, a more settled form of life, you know, took precedence over the rangelands, kind of, you know, walking with their animals. As a community, uh, there are the frontier community called the bhotiyas, who are scheduled tribe community but they form a small percentage, just about less than 20%. The rest are agriculturalists. Um, That's the broad categorization. Of course, you have a lot of what we call shikars, which is the artisan class, uh, which is also the scheduled caste community. They're also around 20%. So 40% of the population is scheduled caste and scheduled tribe. uh,
1: And the rest is basically people who live off the land. Uttarakhand being a place that poses several environmental challenges to the communities who live there is also experiencing the effects of climate change in many ways. However, the daily struggles of the people there are rarely spoken about. So at a broader level, you know, people are
2: not so worked up about climate change per se. Uh, People are concerned about weather and the kind of challenges it throws out. Of course, at the, uh, you know, level of the everyday lived experience, more and more people are experiencing extreme climate events, have begun to see the connect, and have begun to worry about it. But, you know, the immediate worries are so much more, you know, Uh, wildlife predation for one, Uh, the fact that there is not enough support for subsistence agriculture. If you're not You know, a player in the market economy, nobody's really bothered about whether you're ensuring food security. Why is it that, you know, we are not supported as farmers? Those are far more immediate concerns. Uh, But over time, yes, people have begun to see that there have been extreme weather events. There is a lot more rain and a lot of rain at the wrong time, which of course impacts your, you know, crop and your productivity as a farmer well uh, these have become concerns now and with the media using this term more and more uh, yes there is a concern and you know people are a little thrown but you know it's people like us who, be, who have begun to bring it into the consciousness and say look do we need to be prepared for this for this can we do something to you know uh, mitigate the effects can we make sure that we adapt soon enough. So this is the narrative that's being brought in by us. But I think as subsistence farmers, people have always been challenged in landscapes like the ones we live in.
0: Over here with the climate change, uh, we uh, as communities have been experiencing the climate change since 2013. The 2013 has been uh, quite a difficult time for all of us with landslides and disasters all over. The gas sites have been here for a very long time, and the cloudbursts have been uh, pretty frequented. We have also felt uh, the rains, which have been very uncertain. That is like it. Uh, for example, in this part, in this year itself, it has rained a lot, and when we didn't need it, it has rained now. And when we wanted it, it, there was no rain.
1: Climatic unpredictability is particularly worrisome when it comes to food security. While this landscape is one of bountiful biodiversity and natural resources, their mismanagement has spelled disaster in unintentioned ways. So in terms of
2: adaptation, I feel that sometimes in the name of development, we uh, as a society make interventions that we think is progress. For instance, hydropower and looking at the Himalayas, which is the water tower of you know, north of the continent, uh, to look at this resource or look at water as a resource necessarily and not as a life-giving force. And you know, building dams in places that you really shouldn't be building dams. Uh, I think the disasters that have occurred in Uttarakhand have been exacerbated a lot by the damning activity that has happened. So I think one of the major problems is adapting to the kind of devastation that follows from this kind of development. Uh, I think uh, that is one of the major challenges that mountain communities face today and will continue to face as long as we look at rivers as a resource and not life-giving force. As much as we meddle with nature, so much more are the consequences that we have to bear the brunt of. In a place like Munsiari, there are only two cash crops. One is potatoes and the other is uh, Rajma, which is a kidney bean. This is the only two crops that we sell at the marketplace. The rest we grow for ourselves and for our cattle. And as a women's collective, what we have realized is to ensure uh, nutritional security that we at least grow enough vegetables to feed ourselves. In the little uh, you know kitchen plots that we have, on the little land holdings we have, we focused our energy in ensuring that we have enough vegetable production that we don't need to necessarily access from the marketplace. And for that, we've you know, started growing our vegetables in what we call hoop houses, low-cost polyhouses. That's one intervention we've made. And that actually serves two purposes. One, it protects the crop from you know, wildlife predation because it's a covered space. And second, from the vagaries of nature and vagaries of climate and weather events and climate events.
1: This region, which is still home to significant tree cover, falls under a unique system of governance known as the Van Panchayats or the Forest Commons. As the communities still hold a stake in the fate of these natural resources and agriculture, UYRDC and Mati have been able to carry forward some traditional sustainable practices.
0: As communities, of course, uh, uh, the way we are able to stabilize ourselves is by the two ways, like every Grand Panchat or the village councils, we do have something like one panchats and the uh, one Panchat are they the forest; they're able to design tools and so when patches are the bodies that have been able to restore biodiversity our the in the forest areas. It's good that the in Uttarakhand, the, the practice of traditional agriculture has still carried on. So, uh, for example, like we practice the crop rotation as uh, as as a part as a practice, we also practice naga uh, system where we have fill grain systems like we. As we cultivate here the cereals, the pulses, the oil seeds, and tubers. Uh, so, that way around, by having a dynamic mix of these crops, we are able to become more resilient as uh, farming communities. So, the traditional system and traditional knowledge has been able to bring stability in the changing climates.
1: But the modern welfare state is contributing to the loss of this traditional knowledge and inherent resilience. There are, however, downfalls to programs like the Public Distribution System, or PDS, that aims at achieving food security in marginalized landscapes and has been providing local communities with highly subsidized foodstuffs.
0: Public distribution system that the government has promoted has also made uh, people more dependent on these and the agricultural land holdings have not been as progressive as prosperous as they were in the early time because uh, it's like easy money, it's like the easy system, which is somewhere i heard, you know, that hard times create strong men, strong men create uh, easy times, easy times create uh, weak men. So perhaps the PDS system uh, that we uh, see in these times is making uh, life so easy and many of the communities are now being lured into those uh, previous uh, systems to be more dependent there and we are losing more of the perpetual land buildings.
2: You know, in 2013, when the floods took place here and uh, it kind of, uh, the roads here were, you know, broken down and connectivity was bad and certain areas got cut off. And like Siddharth said, you know, for the first time people experienced famine-like conditions. And these are the same areas that in the earlier times had food because it was, basically a subsistence farming area but people grew enough food to last them a whole year but because they had become so dependent on the PDS system suddenly when there was a crisis you know their basic resilience as farmers had been eroded and there was a famine-like situation so sometimes you know the welfare state where you just give the minimum for people to keep going and don't support the agricultural society in being able to, you know, fulfill what they've been always good at. Uh, It leads to alienation, leads to all kinds of, you know, problems that actually disable you from being adaptive and being able to survive on landscapes like ours. So I just felt like, you know, seconding what Sudhar said, that the PDS system for the public distribution system on the one hand seems to have tackled the problem of you know nutritional deficiency but has created another sort of problem for farmers
1: from their responses so far You can tell that women's empowerment is important to both Malika and Siddharth and there are many reasons for this.
0: By empowering women at this point of time, the outcomes are towards the more progressive family. When it is a woman who is driving the, the work to be able to meet her family's needs, uh, she's also going to the forest and therefore there's a lot of, uh, lot of wisdom that she's also carrying with her. But somehow the voices that, uh, uh, that she can uh, bring towards a more progressive community and uh, so our programs are been towards mobilizing women into enterprise, the enterprise. their way of living by whatever information we have because I would not say that we are empowering them but when we are working with them, we are also empowering ourselves.
2: Now, do we believe that women are essentially, uh, you know, the people who will bring about change? I feel that in an agrarian society, definitely, because, you know, we are the ones who have been entrusted with the uh, job of ensuring food security for the family. But we also see very clearly that in a uh, in an economy that is getting more and more integrated with the marketplace, with markets. And like Siddharth said, the pressure on men to earn a livelihood and bring back cash is much stronger. So women are then left to fend, you know, for the family in spaces where the market hasn't quite penetrated. I think it's significant to note that when we are talking about subsistence agriculture, where you're not you know, producing for the marketplace, but you're producing for your family and for your nutritional needs, the whole approach changes. It's more collaborative. Everything is not dependent on how much money you have and how much labor you employ, but a lot on exchange labor. So I think like in cities, women live in cities as well, but you can see women in cities are far more competitive far less collaborative, you know, than one would want. Uh, As a feminist, I do believe that women tend to collaborate more, but I also feel as a feminist that, you know, one has to look at it from all its aspects. In a capitalist society, where the reward is in terms of the money you bring home, where everything is commodified, men are the first victims. Women follow fast enough. So, In agrarian societies, working with women makes sense. Strengthening women's hands makes sense. Women still continue to collaborate and therefore it makes sense. But should we become a more marketized economy, I think women would be, you know, equal victims as men. So I don't want to romanticize the fact that we work with women or women have you know, superior intelligence, or the, you know, oftentimes they'll talk about the feminist, the feminine principle being more nurturing and caring. I think it's patriarchy, you know, kind of robs men of their nurturing and caring sides. The way women approach the whole issue of, you know, food security is to not just look for quick production of food, but sustained production. So one of the things that women have, women within our collective have ensured is to save seeds that are uh, open-pollinated heirloom seeds where you know that you can propagate your own seeds, save them. And if you go in for hybrid seeds, clearly the power is vested in seed companies. So that's a realization that's true. And, you know, saving... Uh, old seeds from the region uh, which have kind of adapted to the landscape and therefore are more resilient so it's land it's seed and then also what we produce whatever we produce we will exchange or sell locally we even though we do have a few cash crops, we're not looking at the market as our ultimate target a lot of the seeds and food that we produce are locally exchanged or locally sold. So one of the strategies that women have understood and have adopted is that reduce the external inputs to its minimum, revert back to a natural cycle, which is more dependent on replenishing nutrients from the forest, which is using local breeds of cows, which maybe might not yield a lot of milk, but yield enough farmyard, you know, enough manure to convert into farmyard manure. So it's working with the seasons, it's working with the landscape, it's reducing and actually eliminating dependence on external inputs. That to us is what
1: encapsulates regenerative farming. Large-scale collaborative efforts, like regenerative farming, benefit when the women are equal or lead stakeholders. Providing women with the opportunity to lead agrarian adaptations to climate change has already impacted people's outlook towards traditional practices.
0: The, the trending world is that millets are a poor man's crop. So people have been looking at their own farming as a, as a farmer from a poor man's crop. So he felt that his status is very small. But after the COVID had come and gone, people realized having nutritional food is more important than just having food security. It is important to have nutritional security. So therefore, very soon uh, now uh, the, the poor man's crop has become a rich man's food. So the realization that uh, the poor man's crop has become a rich man's food was motivating definitely to the communities and uh, to be able to Uh, bring back the Lost uh, Millet was a vision that we had started to pursue and uh, we have started achieving.
1: What makes Uttarakhand special in its socio-ecological interconnectedness is the spirituality and culture of its people that grounds them firmly to the land through their knowledge, tradition, and experience.
0: We in the, the mountains revere our spiritualness more. So, uh, for example, in every village there is this uh, ma we call, or the goddesses, which is the supreme. And a lot of the goddesses are two brothers who uh, protect her. And therefore, she is the one who is balancing the entire village. And along with her is the Fumiya or Bumi Ke Devta, which is the, uh, the gods of the uh, Fumi. And therefore, uh, to, to be able to work with the bees because bee is Maul Hamari Devi and uh, Gaumata. So everything in a spiritual uh, living entity. And therefore, when the uh, communities Are working with this philosophy, they are more at uh, bliss. So uh, that is how we have, we collectively as communities have been trying to pursue the farming system or the regenerative system through different ways and means uh, by bringing nature connectedness with the spiritualness with our own seed systems. Being in the mountains is always spiritual because. When we go out to the to the jungles, so we call up our deities to be with us, to be able to guard, to be able to see that we are we're healthy and safe. So the spiritualness is always that. And in the in the present light, uh, towards the us, the future, the the interconnected best was was only going to grow. For example, like when we have been working with the communities, communities want want to sing the songs of the seeds, they want to sing the songs of different kinds of grains that they practice and they use.
1: This human nature connection runs deep, but in contemporary times is also at risk. There is a saying in the state of Uttarakhand,
2: it's said in Hindi, which is, which is to say, you know, that the waters of the mountains and the youth of uh, this region, um, they have never, you know, benefited from being in the mountain place in in this region which is really looking at it from a lens which says that if you can't monetize something, if you can't extract from nature, then nature is of no use to you, nor as your human capital. If we are to stem this tide, you know, this kind of unraveling of uh, uh, a way of living within a landscape where your ecological footprint is small, where the land gives enough to ensure your well-being, but maybe not wealth creation, where you are still custodians of your forest commons, yet you know benefit from it. Uh, those are these are two really different paradigms, and it's really a choice now. It's a choice for people living in the mountains to either pursue a life. That is land-based, nature-based, um, talking birth, you know what you call regenerative farming practices, um, living in a kind of state of equilibrium, a balanced state with nature.
1: In the next episode, flying across the Indian Ocean to Australia, we'll arrive in the small town of Moriwa, on the southern coast of New South Wales. We'll discover how a not-for-profit community group called SAGE formed and about their dream to develop a strong community-based food system. We will also follow them through the fires and floods and hear how these climatic disasters force them to re-evaluate their relationship to the land. This episode was produced by the Grounded Imaginaries Research Project, funded by the V. Kahn Rasmussen Foundation. The project partners are the Sydney Environmental Institute, Social Entrepreneurship Association, Auroville and India and Bharat together. To stay on this journey with us, follow the project on Instagram at Grounded Imaginaries and tell us what questions and ideas are alive for you. Help us share this podcast series far and wide to inspire communities in all pockets of the world facing the reality of climate change that an alternative future is possible.